You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Benny Goodman. I know I don't sound as awake as normal, and that's just because um, I'm not. But whatever. Fuck it. I toy-toyed myself today. Working hard? <laughs> yeah, or hardly working, but hard about it. Weren't you, like, making cupcakes today? There was, like, a, a distinctive block in your Sundays. schedule. Oh, Sunday. Okay. Oh, we had Sunday. Yeah, we did make ice cream Sundays. In fact. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, Sundays. You forget already? Sunday. I didn't eat it. I didn't eat it. I do way too many push-ups and pull-ups and shit to try yeah. to like look even remotely like Pauly Calafiore. I can't fucking <laughs> eat that shit. I, so are you going to introduce us or anything? Yeah. Well, I, I guess. I mean, <laughs> so I'm very excited, as you can clearly tell, because energy transfers. Um, Siobhan Cronin, everybody. Hi. That's Corey clapping. <laughs> and then we have Corey Peza. <laughs> Who is, like I said, more than just a bass player. Yay, Corey. <laughs> He's also an avid drinker You're of alcohol. Better. So, like, like, again, sponsors. Get that. Like, if you work for a co- That doesn't paint me in a really good light. You don't start off by introducing someone as an alcohol drinker. I thought we're trying to get sponsors. Don't we want, like, don't we want the Jameson people to be like, oh, we want that guy? <laughs> yeah, we'll take anyone. We're not going to be too picky. Yeah, people sponsor Snapple us. Snapple really is the best stuff on earth as I'm drinking this spray. It's delicious. While you're at home drinking your beverages or hopefully not driving in your car drinking some alcohol, uh, we've got a pretty pretty cool episode. Well, I didn't want to name drop like about like Aerosmith or Ozzy or Studio 54 or Pearl Jam or Charlie Daniels, <laughs> even though he wasn't dead yet, and Van Halen, even though he wasn't dead yet. Rip, Eddie, the king. I mean, I did just do yeah. that, though. Anyways, to give some context to what Ben's screaming about, we're talking to industry legend Dan Beck this week who has worked with people on that list that, that Ben rifled off, including Aerosmith, Ozzy, uh, Pearl Jam. Ozzy Studio 54, but he didn't Jam, work. Charlie Daniels, Van Halen. <laughs> he did some, he talks about Studio 54. He didn't, I don't think he actually worked there. Um, oh, I thought but, he yeah, like, worked in the bathrooms, like giving them, like clean the hands and stuff, and then gave him cocaine when Michael Jackson wouldn't take it. Well, hey, let's maybe, not speculate. Maybe. People just need to tune in and listen. He's, you know, an industry legend with, you know, interactions with all these people we've mentioned. Just so many amazing stories behind the curtain, behind the scenes, talking to some of the biggest superstars in the in the industry. Well, I know Absolutely. I wanted to know since I was a child what the fuck happened when Ozzy bit the head off, you know, uh, a dove. Dan was Dan was like not like in the room, but like he was the, the first call. And I got to tell you. Yeah. I can only imagine that first. Guy. Well, you can hear it, actually. Yeah, the story, the story. You can listen to the story in the episode itself. But we, we recorded this back in June. So, yeah, we do talk about uh, Van Halen uh, and Charlie Daniels, who have passed since then. Um, but so ironic. It, yeah. And, and also at the time we were working with Dan um, with our band Lost Symphony. We, we kind of talk about that a little bit as well i mean honestly well if you guys listen his charity is so huge like the fact that he even had time to come talk to us on the show is like ridiculous so like i uh, i don't know i speak for myself but i, I i'm thankful for every moment yeah he dropped in this. and shared his knowledge gave us some advice and he then taught us how to fish. You know, went we're on fishing. his merry way yeah we're fishing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly and uh you can kind of get a little glimpse of that knowledge in this episode so stay tuned dan beck on 2020 And welcome to this week's episode of 2020. I'm Benny Goodman. And I want to, before anything, before we get into all the things that are going through my head, if you didn't notice this, I would like to introduce Ardeus, the incubation tribe, the, the, the hoarding culture here. We have over there is Corey Peza trying to rip off my Iron Maiden. We both were twinning today. Yes. Oh, um, down there <laughs> is the always filtered looking Siobhan Cronin, but that's actually just the way she looks. It's obnoxious. I agree with you. And then I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased to announce someone who's so above our pay grade, 
who's so beyond this, he must literally have nothing else to do. Uh, I'd like to introduce a musical legend, a legend, this Dan Beck, who has worked with everybody from Pearl Jam and Michael Jackson to Ozzy Osbourne. And you know what? I, I really don't know. It's kind of like my dad, where I don't know what he does. I kind of kind of knows what he, what he does. Dan, <laughs> could you tell our listeners why you're so awesome? It's I've just been around a long time and things happen and you happen to be there, you know, so it's, uh, you know, that's been happening to me over and over and over again. And, and I'm lucky. Could you maybe like talk a little bit about your the early side of your career? Because I always find it interesting, especially like from a musician standpoint, like how does somebody end up on a certain path? Well, I, I grew up, my brother was was an absolute Elvis Presley, you know, fanatic. And I, it was my big brother. So, you know, so I, I, my big brother was awesome to me. And so, God, this guy Elvis. And then I started seeing a fan and a superstar and what it meant. And I think ultimately that has guided me to be, to try to be that person who brings artists and audiences together. Well, can and, you really and, explain, Dan, I don't mean to interrupt, yeah, but as a, as yeah. a stoner, you still yeah. didn't answer my question. Why are what? you so awesome? You were so humble that's, about that's it. That's a loaded question. Name, name drop. Because I have this whole sheet on my computer that says stuff like Living Color, Ozzy Osbourne, Jeff Beck, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Cindy Ray Vaughan. So you clearly did something other than mow people's lawns. Tell our viewers <laughs> right, right. why what you're saying is so important, please. All right. So well, going, back to, uh, going back to what Siobhan said. So I started writing songs, playing in local bands. And I was, I was a lousy musician, but I had great kind of lyrical ideas. And so I really started pursuing it. And I ended up, uh, I jumped on a plane, Eastern Airlines out of Pittsburgh. I flew to Nashville and met a whole bunch of people that were on the street down there who were not country music people. It was like this, the Doobie Brothers and Captain Hook and the Medicine Show and Shel Silverstein and all these people. I ended up getting a job ultimately uh writing so for like, like hanging out a, a with magazine Silverstein, smoking weed like hanging out talking about the giving tree like is that are, are you like were you around at that time you just said shell silverstein out of nowhere just yeah. randomly right. shell silverstein's like hanging out with the doobie brothers yeah but, well shell used to come by my office all the time oh, I, amazing Michelle. yeah it's uh <laughs> and shell actually I just was, wave at him it, oh uh Oh, that's another story. I won't even get into that one. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I ended up I ended up being in the South as uh, outlaw music was happening out of Texas, and uh, the Southern rock scene was developing out of Macon and Atlanta. And I was writing about it as a young journalist in the South, but I was from the North. I was a rock and roller, mm -hmm. so. Uh, and I was doing the country reviews. I was going to the Grand Old Opry every Saturday night. And, uh, uh, but I ended up, I got to know Charlie Daniels. I wrote some stories about him. I ended up at Epic. Charlie Daniels. And I ended up at Epic. And he was thrilled that I was there. He signed when I uh, was head of publicity in New York. Uh, but I was, I was Tammy Wynette's first publicist. I was the first record label publicist in, in Nashville. I got David Allen Coe on the cover of the New York Times Sunday Magazine before he had an album out. It's, uh, oh, okay, David, I have to ask this, because one of those, the liner notes on here says Pantera, and I know that yeah. David Allen Coe and Pantera like loved each other. Did, right. is, there, is there any but, backstory to this? Yeah, yeah, we, we'd have to jump ahead about 30-some years. Well, but, I want to uh, know about Dimebag, because I, 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 can't, I can't survive waiting that long. Right. Right. Well, actually, the, the involvement with Pantera was I managed Biohazard uh, about 20 years ago. I don't know if anybody knows that band. but Yeah, uh, I've heard of them. Billy! <laughs> uh, and and we, were, we put together the Uncivilized album, which came out in 2001. It actually came out on 9-11. And... Uh, that must have been got, a great day for it to come uh, out. Uh, what a Tuesday. Boy. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, we got, we got all these guys from Pantera, from all the, uh, all the great metal bands of that, of that moment in time, uh, guested on, on, uh, the Biohazard album. Then we released the album. We did a, we did an in-store, uh, here on Long Island at midnight, uh, on the Tuesday night that the record came out. 
And the next morning, 9-11. And I, the, the guys, I had the guys getting on a plane that afternoon oh. to go to Europe wow. to be on the, uh, to be on the uh, Tattoo the Planet tour. Pantera was headlining. Slayer was the special guest. We were like fifth on the bill. And, of course, no planes took off. Yeah. Right. Tour was done. Pantera d decided they did not want to leave the U.S. And uh, there, there was, it was chaos for like a week or two. We couldn't even, you know, we were nowhere with our album. It was just gone. And uh, they, uh, but the tour started to come back together. And uh, as it turned out, Slayer was going to headline. and. The guys in Biohazard and and the guys in Slayer had kind of an interesting history, and Slayer probably didn't want them on the tour, <laughs> so we had to patch that up a bit. And so, uh, what, what are you, hold on, hold on, can we? You're casually going over so much cool stuff. Should you sit down, Carrie King, and grab Evan from Biohazard and go? Hey guys, can we sing Kumbaya? Like, uh, yeah, that was basically what we did. But yeah. is that what you it's do? A, because I mean, I've seen Evan; he's a scary dude. They played a guy on Oz. If you haven't yeah, seen him, their he's manager, scary. their manager was a friend of mine. He had tour managed some band that I had. I had product managed at Epic when I was uh, in marketing at Epic. So he protected you from Evan. Yeah. So okay. so. The manager and I, I forget his name now, uh, uh, we, we connected and, and he told me the whole story of, of why they had a problem. And it was like, okay, I got to go back to my band. They got to go make up, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with Slayer and let's see if we could pull this together. So Bio, it, on, but did, did, is Biohazard and Slayer cool now? Because we don't want any of this like yeah, East I think Coast, so. West, yeah, I, West I, Coast I think stuff so. going on anymore. Yeah, we yeah, need I, to really you know, settle this. We don't need another that, Tupac. That, yeah. that was 20 <laughs> years ago. They probably can't even remember what they were fighting about. You know, so it's, it's uh, you know. Uh, we've got, um, so we've got like a, a million stories that I can't wait to get into. But on that, on that topic, would you say that uh, – part of your job over the past, you know, so many decades has been like a therapist to these bands and, and to well, the some people used to call me Epic's psychiatrist, yeah. you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, but you know, uh, yeah, uh, you know, like back in, back in the old days, back in the, the physical product days of, of, of music, the, you know, the, the key was you had to have, that album in position, you know, at the right time in the right stores at the right moment. And, you know, and essentially, you know, a record success back then was the radio. You put it on the radio. Mm -hmm. Okay. So again, I'm going to interrupt except you for metal. You know? Because I see on my screen here that you were, you, you were there for Ozzy Osbourne, who happens to be, if, if anyone knows me, like Ozzy was my, my life's blood until I watched, how he is now, which kind of makes me sad, but how he was, Ozzy was the biggest thing ever. And I want to know, like you said, you're responsible for making sure that records happen. Were, were you part of like all this Ozzy stuff? Cause I hear this story about how he came into a record uh, company release, yeah. bit the head off of a dub or something. Yeah. Were you there? Please tell I, me. I was there. not, but I got the first call oh. from, from that conference room. Of course you did. <laughs> and, uh, my staff was, uh, my marketing staff was in the meeting and they were a little uptight. Uh, you know, you don't I, say. Ozzy went in, Ozzy and Sharon and a, and, a, and a dear old friend of mine named Pat Siciliano who worked for, for Ozzy and Sharon, uh, uh, you know, they, they were just, they just went in to bust chops, you know. It, I still questioned whether it was just a theatrical trick but everybody in the room to this day swears it was live. But, you know, my, I, my thought was that he had a, a dummy, you know, that he bit the head and had the, the oh, blood capsule and released, <laughs> and released the live dove. While know? we're at it, is Paul McCartney really Paul McCartney? <laughs> that I have no idea. But I will tell you that later, a, a few years later, I took Ozzy to dinner at the restaurant sign of the sign of the dove. 
and uh, I have a picture of it. I'll I'll send you. you know, so, <laughs> wow! Uh, it's he and I outside looking up at the sign. You know. So. Well, wow. but, but before we go any further, I just want to tell everyone address the room and the elephant. What this is. So I got twenty twenty this week, but I have nobody to blame but myself. And it's I mean, it's it's really this you know a long like you know how you see your life flash before your eyes. This was a life flashing before my eyes moment because when I was a child, people thought I looked like Macaulay Culkin. You know, the from Home Alone. But except I realized that now I've come full circle where I was Macaulay Culkin. I was Macaulay Culkining myself in the house. And I was actually <laughs> Joe, Joe Pesci and the other guy getting my ass kicked by myself. Because what happened was started off with a cough. And this is an affirmation in life how you know that you're starting to get old and things, regardless of your, your tour shirts, you're getting old. I coughed and it then started this chain reaction that caused my back. To, to blow out. But before I realized the squirrel of electricity going up my back was going to cause me to be debilitated, I then ran into a door at full speed. And then falling onto the floor, I didn't realize how hard I hit myself. I was just embarrassed. But as I got up, I was about 70% up. And then I realized that my back was thrown out. And then I fell directly onto my face again to only realize there was blood on the floor. And that's when I realized it looked like this. Is there, uh, is there video evidence of this? I really, really wish that there was. All I <laughs> can tell you is that I, I came up with this idea of, make the, it a meme. of the flux capacitor, and I realized I could go back in time. But other than that, this is what this is called being 2020. But by myself in my own house, there's Impressive. nothing but neosporin. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to let people know if you were disturbed, there was no domestic violence from anyone other than myself. Oh my gosh! Good. Well, to, to go to go back to some, uh, you know, other music content. So a couple of things that that um, I wanted to bring up, just for anyone that might not like listeners that might not know what goes on behind the scenes in the music industry. You mentioned a lot of like different job titles, like project manager. And I know this was something that was new for me, getting into rock bands and meeting people that work at labels. There are so many different levels of, you know, creative control and marketing and stuff that goes on. And I mean, maybe you can talk a little more to like some of the different types of jobs that you had and the types of work that you did with different artists and, you know, how that trajectory right. played out. Right. Well, I, I started as a publicist, you know, getting, getting press for, uh, for acts. And then I transitioned to uh, the marketing department, became a product manager. And at major labels- you yourself like a, a music fluid- kind of person that you can do like all sorts of things like uh, you, yeah, well, you, don't know, the, you don't know publishing it's all a little bit a and r it's uh well, music I, fluid. you know yeah well I, I ran aerosmith's publishing at one point and i gave steven tyler his first royalty check wow and, uh, so, <laughs> so, no big uh, deal no big deal yeah. i don't think he remembers it i don't you know i used to introduce i don't think he remembers 1982 to 1989 Dan. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, I every time I would 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 see him, he'd come into the office. I, I was working at his management company at the time, and he would come into the office, and I would introduce myself to him every time. Oh and, my gosh! Wow! And, and sometimes <laughs> one of those guys. And sometimes he would say, "Dan, why are you re reintroducing yourself?" You uh. And it's like, <laughs> but sometimes he didn't. You yeah. know? So. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to live in a world like that, where some days you just know like what's going on, and other days it's just a new day for you, like ground or that, or that you can get away with that. You have to get to a certain level for that yeah, to be right. socially acceptable. Okay, hold on. So I want to I want to ask Dan a question. That, Wait, he that, hasn't even answered yeah. my question. Oh, that's but, true. Okay, yeah. so hold on. Question. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so I became a product manager. What a product manager does, this is at Epic, and you get, you're assigned artists and you're kind of the concierge. You're the, mm -hmm. you're the guide through the corporation, you know? And so you're meeting with the art department on the cover. You're, you're, do you're doing the scheduling. You're meeting with all the other departments to make sure everybody's in sync. And of course, back in in the you know the old school days, everything had to arrive at the right time, mm -hmm. and that was a big part of it. Today, you don't have to worry about that, you know. But what was right. what was uh, so you would get an artist, and a lot of times what would start to happen is you'd get a reputation as a product manager, and then artist managers or their attorneys would ask for you know, oh, hey, we want Dan to handle this, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And, you know, so it, it kind of goes that way. And 
but I worked with the Isley brothers early on, Charlie Daniels. I product managed The Clash, uh, and uh, it was really you know, pro- quite involved with them in, in the early stages. And Cindy um, uh, Lauper, and uh, I, uh, one of inter- the other things we can did I, Can was- I interject, Dan? Because yeah. the reason we have Dan, and I need to say this, is because he's part of our sponsor. The only yes. reason that, our, that that we could get someone so far out of our pay grade is because Dan <laughs> is actually part of the Lost Symphony team, know. which is the whole reason this is here. I know, oh, it just got so corny. Like, I could feel Corey just inside his soul going, oh. No, I was, I, was, I was hoping I had some Lost Symphony swag to hold up, but I- I, I know, I, I need to get mine. No, my, and I put mine over there I know, too. My, my coffee <laughs> mug's upstairs. It's uh, the record on the wall right there. There's a record. There you go. But the reason I'm saying that was because when I talked to Dan this week, um, I sent because here's the thing when you meet people that are like Dan, um, that are so humble and have done so much, and they just gloss over things just casually. So I casually send Dan a meme because, you know, we're living in 2020. To get 2020, you send memes to people. That's how we speak. That's how we communicate now. So I send Dan a meme that said something to the extent of, even if you don't like the Eagles, we can still agree that Joe Walsh is pretty awesome. And then Dan wrote back the following, Dan, what did you tell me about Joe Walsh? See, tell me the story. That's what I want to know. Joe Walsh in in the hotel room. This is what I want to know. This is the Holiday Inn, Memphis, right on the Mississippi River. Uh, we went to a show th- that night. Uh, I don't know whether Joe played, but uh, we had an epic. We had an act on, and I was down there with another guy who was a total asshole from the company. <laughs> and and this guy was busting on our act, who was who who had opened. You know, for uh, I don't know whether it was for Joe or who it was, but anyway, uh, Irving Azoff, who managed Joe at the time, and one of the biggest guys in the music industry for anyone and, who doesn't know, Google and, and Joe were there, and they heard this guy bust on this young artist who was struggling. You know, so later we ended up in this guy's room. He invited everybody up. Like, hey, come up to my hotel room. We'll have, we'll have a drink. So everybody shows up. Joe Walsh, Irving, I'm there because I'm with this guy traveling with this jerk. And uh, so anyway, they start talking. To, they said, oh, didn't you say this to so-and-so? And, and, you know, this guy was trying to weasel his way out of it. In the meantime, Joe Walsh took a picture and poured a pitcher of water in the TV set and they go kind of like, poof, you know, <laughs> smoke was coming up. And then he and Irving systematically took this guy's room apart. <laughs> I mean, is this like a rock and roll code? The drop ceiling. I don't, oh my they, they had a plan. I mean, oh they just systematically. Who pays for this? I, I want to so, know, Dan, who pays for this? This is reminding no. me of that Motley Crue do, like, docudrama I, that was on. Anyway, go ahead, this really happened. That's just so, written by so somebody. No, I know, but I'm saying this right, like right. happens. Right. So at this point, I realized that I needed to rearrange my sock drawer. So <laughs> I left. <laughs> and I Smart went to move. my room. So the, the next morning, I get down. You know, we're checking out, fly back to New York, right? And this guy is sitting in the office <laughs> with, with a hotel manager, you know, and they got a calculator going, you know, oh, just geez. running up the cost that he had to pay. But, uh, but you know, it, 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 in those days of rock and roll destroying hotel rooms and that sort of thing, <laughs> I, I, there actually seemed to be a reason behind this one yeah. because they, <laughs> right. they were getting back at him for, for dissing uh, this young artist and I didn't blame him, you know, so. So before we move on from the meme thing, I found a meme online that it's attributed to Glenn Danzig and clearly it's not by Glenn Danzig, but it just makes this <laughs> right. all the funnier. But I, I want to know what you think about this, Dan, because I know you've worked with a lot of assholes, as you've said, and um, tell me how you feel about this. Um, the shopping cart is the ultimate litmus test for whether a person is capable of self-governing. To return the shopping cart is an easy, convenient task, and one in which we can all recognize as correct, appropriate thing to do. To return the shopping cart is objectively right. There are no situations other than dire emergencies in which a person is not able to return their cart. 
Simultaneously, it is not illegal to abandon your shopping cart. Therefore, the shopping cart presents itself as the apex example of whether a person will do what is right without being forced to do it. No one will punish you for not returning the shopping cart. No one will find you or kill you for not returning the shopping cart. You gain nothing by returning the shopping cart. You must return the shopping cart out of the goodness of your own heart. You must return the shopping cart because it's the right thing to do, because it is correct. A person who is unable to do this is no better than an animal. An absolute savage, you can only be made to do what is right by threatening them with the law and the force that stands behind it. The shopping cart is what determines whether a person is a good or bad member of society. Dan, do you return your shopping cart? Uh, well, Ben, I think you'll have to talk to my attorney. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's so funny. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Well, well, to change gears a little bit, not to change the conversation. Uh, <laughs> but but one thing that really interests me a lot Thanks, that, you Siobhan. know, so, no, I, I wasn't trying to steal no, your thunder. No, we appreciate Don't steal the but thunder. There's, there, there's so much value thunder. to be drawn here. Oh. I feel like I got to I got to get to the questions I have. Um, okay. So one thing that I'm interested in, like hearing your perspective is if you were able to identify some things that really sets certain artists apart or like what is it that makes certain acts or artists or music really special compared to other things that might not be so successful. You know, cause one thing that fascinates me about being in star set is, you know, in a lot of ways there might be some similarities with other types of music or other types of performances, but obviously there's some money. sort of X. Well, no, it's not just money. There is some sort of X factor. Well, you have to think about it because now in the age fans. of streaming, in the age of streaming, a lot of it really does have to do with the music because you might be dealing with fans that are listening to you from overseas that have never seen you live that maybe haven't seen videos you know, and they may not even speak the language. So there has to be some sort of thing that, have, you know, that, that management maybe sees that, that that's something that they're like, okay, this is gold, you know, and we're going to run with this. So that, that I'm interested in hearing your perspective on that, maybe with some artists you worked with. You know, I, I mean, still, I talk, talk to young artists all the time and, you know, and basically I tell the, you know, they say, is it a hit? Is it a hit? And, and I say, it's competitive. I, I, uh -huh. I, I can't say what's a hit because, because, it's really about being in the game, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I, I, I've heard you Isn't guys that talk. Like a Jay-Z quote. Did you just like paraphrase Jay-Z and try to take that as like a Dan Beck quote? Isn't it about being in maybe, the game? Maybe Jay-Z paraphrased yeah. Dan Beck. Right. You know what? Yeah, you know, you know know what? Uh... I think you might be right, Siobhan. Were we the second layer of Inception? Where I just realized that really that all of like gangster raps, like game concept really came from this guy. It's all Yeah, right. Probably did. Yeah, right. Oh my it's, Lord. Uh... Jeez. <laughs> they, uh, I'm verklempt. Uh, but they, you know, I, I think what it is is that uh, what attracts me to music is diversity, uh, diversity of ideas, you know, the collision of different forms of music that uh, I, w I was never very good at marketing like the, uh, you know, the, the producer singer, you know, uh -huh. where you get the, the great singer comes in, ne doesn't necessarily have a, a point of view, and a, and a great producer makes a record and they, they have a hit, you know, and that, that never interests me. I, you know, I, I like The Clash. I like working with Pearl Jam. Uh, mm. You know, I like li working with Living Color. These are acts that had a point of view. Is Eddie better or Peach? Because we work with David, uh, the drummer, from uh -huh. Pearl Jam, and he was evilly smited by that man. And I love Pearl Jam, but I just have to know, like, he he doesn't seem like a peach. Is he a peach? You signed him, right? Like, what made you sign Pearl Jam, Dan? Well, you know, frankly, I didn't work with him <laughs> earl early on with the first album. I product managed the second, third, or and fourth like albums. That. Yes, of course. So, so actually, a guy who worked for me dealt with him early on, and <laughs> and. <laughs> They, you know, hey, they, they started like any young band. It was like we gave them some tour support, stay out on the road, work, you know, sleep forward of a room, you know. <laughs> the, the, the longer you could use our money to stay out there, the better. Why does Eddie hate drummers? Why does he hate drummers? <laughs> I, he does have a drummer thing. Yeah. It's like Spinal Tap in that band. It's literally like from 96 to 99, from 99 to 2001, and then from 2013 to 2000. I can't keep up with it. Like it's literally more times than Iron Maiden uses like the A to F to G chord does Pearl Jam have drummers. Why? Yeah. 
I, that, that I don't know. It's, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it, it, it's really a unique thing. It's well, to go back really, up at night. one other thing that interested me, I, I, I'm interested in what you mean by the, these bands had a point of view and then how that set them apart for you. So can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, you know, if, it, if it's, if it's uh, a musical point of view or a political point of view. So something was, to say, in other words. It was something, yeah, something yeah. that, could really capture the imagination of the fans. Were you part of the you know? thing when, when Pearl Jam were giving out tickets for like, if you didn't dissect your frogs, they had a song called Frogs. You remember this? I, I and, do remember and, that song. And then like, if, if you, like the first 300 people that petitioned at their school that they wouldn't dissect frogs, like Eddie Vedder would send them like a signed mug or something. Like, right. They, was well, that the type of political there? stuff that you were behind as far as the bombast uh, of Pearl Jam? Uh, actually not. Don't you know, kill the frogs, man. Right, right. The, uh, the you know, one of the only things that I, I kind of sold them on coming into the second album after, you know, after the first album was so huge and they were freaked out by that success. And they, they you know, they were afraid they were going to become, uh, uh, what's the, the band from the Carolinas uh, uh, that was so big at that time? Uh, Don't Devil Pilots. No, that's the uh, joke because that, that's what everyone thought. Uh, Hootie and the Blowfish. Like, oh oh yeah. my god! <laughs> and I mean, I, I think they, I think Pearl Jam was concerned that, oh my god, if we just keep loading videos into MTV and and the record company is just gets ravenous, you know? Yeah, give us the next video. Give us the next video. We're gonna we're gonna shove this down everybody's throat until we sell forty million, you know? And they wanted to back off, and you know, and no more videos, that uh, kind of thing. Coming into the second the second album. And I was, you know, I was an older guy for them. You know, they were, you know, I guess when I started product managing them, I was probably, you know, 40 years old, you know, and they, they were slightly older guys at the time too. They were, you know, probably in their, uh, you know, late twenties, early thirties. And, uh, but they were very suspicious of record company people. Mm -hmm. I mean, very suspicious. And so now, you know, th now they get the suit, you know, they get me, you know, right, it's like, yeah. Well, oh, did, they ask, did they ask you Van Halen versus Van Hagar? Like, did, did they give you like the questions? Did they like smell you out? So, well, yeah, you know, like I mean, they're, they're checking you out and, you know, and it's like, so I went, uh, they were actually doing something at Universal on the Universal lot in, uh, in LA. So I went to the lot to meet them to talk about an ad campaign and uh, there had been some talk, you know, oh, you know, the big four color ad at Billboard and, you know, color ads everywhere. And I sat down with Eddie and I said, and, and he said, yeah, so what are you guys going to do or what do you want to do? And, and, you know, and he was ready to kind of wince. And I said, I don't think we should take an ad in Rolling Stone. Mm. And I, I said, I'd like to do half pages in like local rags in black and white. Yeah. And uh -huh. so that we, you know, just just become like a a little indie band again in our. And this is how Eddie Vedder loves you. That is such yeah. an Eddie Vedder. Boom. It was like he, he was probably like, that's the coolest thing ever. You know, but what I was trying to do was, you know, every time I work with an act is, is to try to figure out what, what they want to do because. So important. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Too many record executives walk in. Well, you got to do this. You got to do mm -hmm. that. That's bullshit. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, you get a great act and they, they know where they're going then you just look out for the potholes for them. You know, mm -hmm. you look for the potential problems. You try to emphasize their strengths, you know, mm -hmm. and help them avoid you know, maybe like some things that they don't do well. Because Corey actually tried to interject, and what people don't know <laughs> is that Dan actually has a hearing aid foundation as well, which is why I also tell That's people, great. wear fucking earplugs <laughs> all the time, daily, daily. Go, right. Why do you talk so loud? And I thought it's because I was angry. Because I'm fucking deaf. And, so when and, Dan uh, talks over you, yeah. The reason I um the reason I backed off is because you actually continued on to kind of what I was going to ask, which was oh, I, I want to hear. I, I had your back. Your, um, I, I appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. No, so I'm grateful. Nah, he's just a 
He's just embarrassed that I have these things. Uh, you know, my- <laughs> we're earplugs, wow. children. Yeah, well, but, yeah. So, protect so you your ta- hearing. Yes, absolutely. And you and you were talking about kind of like a very uh, overarching philosophy on how you look at bands and marketing them. Is that something that stayed consistent uh, over your career? Is there any new challenges or different ways you look at artists now compared to when you're working with those Pearl Jams and and other artists like that? I, I think there's a certain fundamental thing that, you know, is always tried and true. You know, I mean, it's it's a live performance. It's, you know, it's sure. uh, it, there, there's a lot of fundamental things that stay the same. Uh, you know, the, the structure around the business changes. You know, I was talking about the old school, you know, dealing with physical product. You know, our challenge was, you know, our challenge was really internal to the record business. You know, we had to turn on the record stores, radio, and our sales force. We had like a thousand people working across the country, you know, and mm-hmm. a lot of my marketing was to turn them on and get them to understand a band. So we all were talking the same way about Okay, that, I'm going to interject again about something so on, my pa- on my page. Because okay, so we're gonna bring it back to the old school, as Dan calls it. I see on here, Dan, and you know, I've known you for a very long time, and I knew nothing about this. It says Beatlemania first Studio Fifty Four party. Can you please take me to that party? What was going on? <laughs> like, I mean, we're oh, to be alive. I, in the days I, I didn't of know you cryogenically frozen. I mean, look, I I know you're old because I'm old because I coughed and hurt my back. <laughs> I didn't know you were cryogenically frozen and still saved and preserved. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's be there. <laughs> With Steve Rebell and the what happened? What All happened right. to the Beatles? They uh you know, well, number one, we came to Boston, we did the Colonial Theater for three weeks, and I was trying to stay away from Beatlemania when I worked for Lieber Krebs. I it, it's like you know, it was it, at that point, Sad. at that point, there were no there were there were no absolutely zero tribute bands. And for there were there were a handful of bands out doing Beatles things, and and uh, and that was it. And so now when when this show started to come together, I was like, you can't do that. That's like sacrilege, you know. <laughs> so Steve Lieber would ask me almost every day, Dan, you got to get involved. You know, come over to SIR and see the work. And I really liked the guys, uh, Mitch Weissman and Joey Pecorino, who were who were. Uh, Paul and and John, great guys. So they'd be up at the office. They'd come back and see me, and we'd hang out. And you know, and they were doing a great job. So we went up to Boston. It almost went away. The show almost died. <laughs> and uh, that's a whole other story. But we came back to New York. We're going to open on Broadway, and we sit down and talk about it and say, you know what's going to happen opening night? You know. All, the New York Times theater critic is going to come. He's going to throw up in the aisle. He's going to say, this is my theater. You know, get out of here. Get out of my city. You know, it, this is a bridge and tun- tunnel show. You know, mm-hmm. we knew they were going to kill us. So we, but the, the rule on Broadway was that if you, if the critics would not come to your show until you announced an opening night. So we did previews. And then we decided we're not going to do an opening night. We're never going to invite them to review us. Dan, is that so, just what you do through your whole career to say, don't put in Rolling Stone. <laughs> don't do an opening night. Is this so, just, so we didn't do an opening night. Don't even practice. What we did do, decide to do was to do, do a celebrity night. And there was a party at this club called Studio 54. Uh, oh, I legendary. Yeah, and legendary. I think it was, I think it was about you know, middle of May that year, that was 77. Yeah. 70, 77. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so I went over and met with uh, Ian Schrager and uh, you know, the, the two guys uh, who owned it, that was the scene. I mean, <laughs> I went into their office. There was like no lights on. <laughs> there was cash everywhere. Oh I mean, God. it was like, oh my God. I mean, it's like, 
bills, you know, money everywhere, you know, you know, and and leave your uh, fingerprints on top of everything. So I made a deal with them to do this party, this celebrity night party. You know, here's what we want to do, blah blah blah. So I go back and we get together and say, okay, we got to get some celebrities out for this thing now, right? So now we start putting the word out, and and no celebrities wanted to come to a Beatles knockoff show. So we got no celebrities coming, you know, to this big Studio 54 celebrity night thing, you know. So oh, we had Steven Tyler because uh, <laughs> Lieber and Krebs went and said, you're our client, you're coming, you know. So, <laughs> so, so, so Tyler's coming now, so right. So, so in the meantime, we're getting – Lieber's starting to freak out. He's sweating every day. He comes in my – Dan, you got to do something. We've got to get some celebrities said, Steve, we're asking, you know, we're trying to, we're talking to every publicist and every label. We only got town. Steve and Tyler. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and uh, so anyway, in desperation, uh, I worked with a guy named Kevin McShane, uh, who was another manager in, in the office. And I said, you know what? This is, this is impersonators on stage, right? I said, let's hire a bunch of impersonator celebrities. And we'll just that make awesome. We'll make the party. It'll be all fake. It'll be, you know, and and it'll all be I feel like you this know. is a metaphor for the entire music industry. <laughs> that's that's so brilliant. anyway, so anyway, we had a plan. So we we start hiring, you know, Liza Minnelli and Michael Jackson look alike, you know, we're getting the and uh so in the meantime, I talked to Susan Blonde, who's one of the greatest publicists ever in the music business and who I had worked with when I was at Epic. And I called Susan and we had talked to her a couple of times and she said, let me see what I can do. So what did Susan do? She brought Michael Jackson and she brought Andy Warhol. Oh and- my God. <laughs> Jesus. And then we got Liza Minnelli at the last minute. And- Are you sure Freddie Mercury wasn't in there dressed like a so, woman? In the, mean- <laughs> but in, the mean- in the meantime, I'm looking around at the party and there's a Michael Jackson lookalike over here. <laughs> and there's Michael Jackson over there. There's Liza Minnelli over here and a lookalike over there. It was like, it was oh to- totally bizarre. In the meantime, uh, that, you know, the, the Studio 54 people are, you know, we've got a, we, you know, it's a party. It's, we're paying for the f- open bar and all that. I'm running around chasing celebrities and doing all this shit. They are charging our, they're charging them for drinks at the bar. These guys were ruthless, you know. It's like I'm running back. Stop! You can't. Do I don't think they have all the money in the back room. That's Dad. right. <laughs> Not by giving shit away to Michael Jackson. <laughs> so oh, any, water, please. So as it turned out, we had a huge hit, and uh, that's amazing. Uh, we got, major press out of that wow so that's that's a great way that's a great example of taking it taking one situation turning it around and making it a benefit Um, you know how important strategy is and i think it's so important like because i i notice this also being on let's say the artist side when i meet people at the label i'll you know and maybe it's just a stereotype but we'll meet like let's say a group of 10 people that are from the label and one of them is creative and gets it and I think yeah. that that's, yeah. that's, that's really hard, you know, especially in, in terms of like artists versus like corporate relations is, you know, so much of it is having somebody that's on the same page of you and, and understanding that there are ways to work around, like thinking outside the box. And willing, you know? willing to take a risk too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's it. And, see, and Corey, you said it. I think that's one of the big problems with, with record companies today is that, you know, when, when, when the disruption came, uh, you know, around 2000, all of a sudden, every record company clammed up. All the money mm-hmm. stopped. You know, there's no tour support money. There's no advertising money. There's, you know, mm-hmm. it's nothing. And so from 2000 until really until streaming started to, to really take hold. So what, what's that, 2015? Yeah, yeah you have, maybe. Yeah, 15 years of people who are now marketing experts in the music business who only know how to say no. Mm-hmm. They've well, never, yeah. they've never been given a nickel I'm gonna interrupt to, you, Dan. to take a risk. You don't want to know why Dan is so great because he practices what he preaches because he's taking a risk on us. The <laughs> fact that he's even working with us, the fact that he's here today, he could be anywhere else. You know what? This, 
who knows what's going to happen to Dan? Don't, don't remind yeah. him it's a risk. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but, but, where he, but you know what I they, hate is when people tell me that my hair sucks, but their Benny, hair is worse or something like that. But he's taking a risk on us because Benny, the chances Benny, of a this is the biggest risk of my life this could be this this is you know this this could be my swan song right this, you know. <laughs> we're gonna be the ones to take him down after all these years <laughs> no that's amazing dan i i love hearing the the kind of mindsets behind some of these like bigger decisions and stuff that that you think about it millions of people know about some of these stories on the the face of them but what mm-hmm. what's behind them is is in my opinion, far more fascinating because I'm sure for every one of those successes, there's a lot of failures as well. Oh man. You know, a lot of bands that I loved and, you know, that, you know, we, we took it to the wall. We, we didn't get lucky. You know, it didn't have traction for whatever reason. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you never get over those, you know, are there any artists that, that's maybe saw like multiple, walls and, and failures that but then turned it around that you can think of the uh well one of one thing that was interesting to me was charlie daniels mm-hmm. and and uh, charlie daniels when i met him back in like 1972 it's uh he was on buddha records and they had uh the the song about uh uneasy rider which is uh, you know about driving around the parking yeah. lot you know and the whole and and they had a, a minor hit with that song and they started getting booked for shows that people thought they were like a, uh, a novelty act <laughs> and they didn't know they were like a Southern boogie band. Right. So, <laughs> so, so Joe Sullivan who managed them, I, w- I was at record world at the time as Southeastern editor. And, and he called me up and, and said, Hey, Dan, we've got a problem we need to tell this story about who they really are. Mm-hmm. You know, I need somebody who could tell that story. And it, it fascinated me. And uh, I said, Hey, let, let me get into it. You know? So I met Charlie, we did an interview. I did the story and it really explained who they were, you know, that Charlie was a session player and nationally played on Bob Dylan's records, you know, and uh, that, uh, uh, you know, just who they were as a band and, and, Charlie and I kind of started a relationship then. It was a few years later, I was, had moved to New York and I was head of publicity for Epic and Charlie was signed. And so he was thrilled. Hey, I got a, I got a, I got a bud in New York, you know? And it's like, you know, and uh, so Charlie, so Charlie, uh, Charlie and I get together when he's signed to, to Epic. And so I'd say, I ask him, you know, I said, you know, hey, how's it been going over these last few years? You know, that challenge you had a couple of years ago, you know, trying to identify who you were. And he said, you know what? He said, you know what, bud? <laughs> he said, uh, he said, you know, everything we do, we do everything. We do every interview. We say thank you. We send notes. We do everything. And he said, we just are hitting this ceiling and we can't break through it. And he said, it's, just, it, it's so frustrating, you know. And in the meantime, Charlie did everything I ever asked him to do, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when I was running publicity. Well, I left the company, went to Lieber Krebs, for, and I was in the management business a couple of years. And I came back. And, and to Epic a couple of years later in the marketing department. So Charlie hears I'm coming back. He said, could Dan be my product manager? So bang, I, you know, so I, I got a down, guy. So I sit down. Yeah. It's my yeah. So it's a, uh, Charlie would always say he's from Long Island. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, so, so anyway, so Charlie, and I, we have the same conversation again and he tells me exactly the same thing. He said, since you left, I've been doing everything, every interview, every, you know, every thank you, you, you know, we just do everything. And he said, we're just, we just, we can't get any further. We just never, we can't seem to break through. So with that album, which was called Million Mile Reflection, which was that they had put a million miles on their bus, okay, mm-hmm. and uh, and touring, the first single off that was Devil Went Down to Georgia. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> so this thing starts exploding. And what happened was my phone exploded too because everybody was calling and saying, you know what? 
that guy did everything I ever asked him to do. Radio stations, journalists, record store clerks, everybody said, what can I do to help? That's great. I want to wow. help that guy. Yeah. And what happened was that album, I think, sold three million copies. But what we had bought the catalog from, from, uh, from Buddha. And so we had like six other albums. And they had all sold a couple hundred thousand records, but nothing above that. They all went platinum. Nice. Nice. We, we, wow. we sold like six million albums. You want, you want to know what I took from that <laughs> on one? one like something, 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 listen to Dan Beck, then make money. <laughs> yeah. Before we move on, I just want to say, uh, coincidentally, last summer, uh, I opened for Charlie Daniels Band. And oh, he's, nice. he's 80 something, 82, 83. Wow. That dude Very cool. spreads. He is amazing. His band is phenomenal. And they sold, they were, they were selling out this place. It was like a 2,000, 2,500 uh, cap room and they just crushed it still yeah, it, charlie's like 82 now yeah. and it's like they're playing better now than they were 20 years ago and phenomenal it, that, that might have been you know a little too much booze <laughs> and Dan, a little Dan, too you really much never, smoke you know never answered the question though from <laughs> the pearl from the from the pearl jam story you never answered it so if you were on a desert island would you listen to the Van Halen catalog with Sammy Hagar as a singer, or would you listen to the Van Halen catalog with uh, David Lee Roth as a singer? And we're just going to ignore Gary Sharon as much as I love him as a person. He's a non-factor in this, this equation. Yeah, I, I, I'd probably listen to my demos. You're, you have demos with Van Halen? <laughs> no, of me. <laughs> I'm I, saying if you had to choose one or the other, we're trying to determine you have how to much talk, of a no, Ben, he, so, you have to talk to his attorney. He's the, not gonna... the, the Hagar, Hagar or, uh, uh, or, or Roth. Okay. Well, you know, the, uh, I forget where I read this just recently about, uh, oh, it was, uh, was the A&R guy that, That's, uh, you know, I know he's old. He still reads. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I loved Roth because of the flamboyance, you know, yeah, and as a and, marketing guy. Yeah. And, yeah. And frankly, I, I, they were on Warner Brothers or whatever. They that was competition, you know. <laughs> I didn't really get into them, you know. It's like I was so focused on my acts. When uh, Sammy Hagar was managed by a guy named Jeff Dornfeld, and Jeff was a, a very good friend of mine. Jeff was to, a tour manager for for Sammy, and then he ultimately became the manager of uh, Boston group Boston and I had product managed Boston. So, uh, so, uh, so Jeff and I got to know each other and I actually kind of grew into liking Sammy, you know, I, I thought oh, liking Sammy. You know, yeah. Awesome. So <laughs> you know. I say that because I actually like Van Hagar better. I get eviscerated by everybody because I grew up this still, this shows, it shows you the nature nurture of music is that like I grew up with like 5150 was like my first Van Halen album. Right, right. So where I was like, oh my God, I loved the keyboards and I loved it. And not just that, just at the end of the day, whether David Lee Roth was good in 83, the way that David Lee Roth is now versus Sammy Hagar. Sammy Hagar is like a fine wine yeah. that's been like literally kept in formaldehyde. It's the first upsetting. Thing I, the first thing <laughs> I actually ever said to Sammy Hagar when I saw him was, please show me your ID because he was like 68 at the time. The guy's like, Walking around, hey guys, how are you? Like, I have arthritis. Like, I'm hurting myself, as you can see. Like, here, Sammy Hagar's like, you want me to mix you a drink? And even last year, <laughs> I saw the guy. He's got more energy, and, yeah. and like, he looks so good. And like, uh, and then David Lee Roth is up there, and like, he still has the body, and he's still like running around, but it's like, ah, ah. Okay. now who produced those early records? Uh, Ted Templeton. Huh? Ted, yeah. Ted Templeman. Ted Templeton is the who, one who, yeah, who said the, this. The Doobie Brothers. Who did the yeah. Doobie Brothers? And and Ted Templeton, uh, you know, he 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 smooth, he felt that he felt that they would not have happened without David Lee Roth. But he said he almost, when he was ready to sign them to Warner Brothers, he was ready to actually talk to uh, uh, to Eddie about getting rid of David and bringing in uh, Sammy then before they even made their first record. But he felt he was, he would destroy the, the, the chemistry. Uh, but, but they sweated David getting through the recording sessions because, you know, that was, the, that was the most record company answer ever because I'd still let you be my product manager knowing I, that you I, said that. So like whatever you said, it just made me feel good. So like, I get why you're so good at what you do, Dan. 
So, and I just want to say thank you for that's just something I read in a ma- I, that's just something I read online. I I have no idea what, what that was. You know, that was Ted Templeton. <laughs> that was Ted Templeton as a record guy, not me. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but I believed it. Uh, you know, so. Well, look, I just want to say we're going to be wrapping up at least this episode for now. But first off, from the bottom of my heart, um, Dan, thank you so much on behalf, first of all of us, um, for being a part of the Lost Symphony Project. LostSymphony.com, chapter one, chapter two being announced <laughs> soon, LostSymphony.com. Dan actually is helping us. So if, if, if we do well, it could be his swan song. In fact, that would be prolific. He'd be like Nostradamus because we have it here. I just want to say again, thank you, Dan, because people that don't know what to do in the music industry, this is a guy to listen to because he's like, we joke around about it, but like, you know, we just casually mentioned, you know, Michael Jackson or Ozzy Osbourne or Pantera. And he's just like, Oh, here's another war story, but he was there. So I recommend to all the people out there, go back and listen to this podcast, edit out everything that I say. Right. And Corey says, listen and, to Siobhan. And, yeah. and, Dan. and we, we do have a, we have a few minutes. We have a few minutes left. So Dan, why don't you just do? talk a little bit? Yeah. We got, we got we about- do? I guess. All right. So is there anything, Dan, you just want to touch on um, parting words? Um, we, we're definitely gonna have to have you back because there's just so, yeah. we have, so much to talk so, about. Listen, but, I uh, haven't even gone to like a third of what, not even a quarter of what I want to talk to Dan about. If you, if you, indulge but you were us, trying to wrap Dan, up early. Do- well, I mean, like, like I said, I don't want to be here and I feel bad for him. I'm trying. This is for him. This is not for you guys. This is for him. So he could go on with his life and pretend that this didn't happen and compartmentalize it like, like all those other bands. The, uh, let me leave you with something that, that, that I, I'm drawn to because of what the three of you do individually, because you're teachers, you know, you, you know, whether you're producing a young band in the studio or teaching them to play an instrument. Uh, and I've heard you say this on podcasts before is that, you know, people come in and it's like, yeah, you know, where do I sign up for a hit? Corey 101. You know, and it's, my thing is, is that, looking now, you know, first thing I sometimes say to them, you know, then they think I'm a geezer that they don't want to listen to, but I basically say, this is not McDonald's. You cannot drive up to this window and place an order and pick it up at that window. It just doesn't happen, you know? And then people say, you know, like, Yo, but, man, that act, but that wow. other act, you know, they suck. How do they become fa-? I said, they're lucky and you're not, you know, they won the lottery. You didn't, you know, you might be 10 times better than them, but don't expect that to happen to you. You have mm-hmm. to earn it. You have to do what you do. And, you have to become a music person. That's what you guys do. You got to work every day, you know, mm-hmm. in one form or another, whatever you're doing, it's all about your work. Mm-hmm. And you have to love that. You have to love doing it day in and day out. A lot of these people, they, you know, they want to, can I go in the studio for an hour and do this record and then, and then start my clothing line, yeah. you know, so, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know and, uh, and it's, you know, it, it's a great point. And that kind of comes back to the Charlie Daniels thing where the, the groundwork that he laid out in the years yes. preceding his success allowed him to sustain that success now for, for decades. That, that's it. I mean, it just, it was like a piggy bank. He was just building up value. He was just building up, you know, people owing him because mm-hmm. he, he just did everything people. Well, it's the same him. way. Up, it's the same people on the way up as it is on the way down. That's what everyone's told me. That's ever I, made I, anything. I, I, I mean, I, I've I never, I've that. only been in, in the bottom. So I don't, I mean, I'm the one <laughs> that you talk to on the way down, but apparently if you're like Siobhan and you go on the way up, Siobhan, just so you know, you'll see me. <laughs> no, but it's, it's so true. And I, I, I see this oh all the time. God. People, people that have the wrong motivations or a bad attitude. And I'm just like, yeah, it's it's so it's so tenuous. You never know when something's going to change, and it's amazing to me when some people like go in with so much bravado and they yeah. want something, but they don't respect the process. Yeah, well, well, that's it, you know. And and you know, but then you also see somebody young coming up, and you see all those ingredients in them mm-hmm. that you say, you know, I got to help this kid because because yeah. they get it, you know, and so much I saw record executives over the years, not not just with musicians, but with with young people working in the business that, you know, they're, they're telling them what they're doing wrong, you know, and, and my my uh, picture of it is, is that most everybody knows what they're doing wrong, <laughs> you know, what they need to 
to be informed about is what they're doing right. Yeah, because they need to be encouraged. You know, hey, that's right. Keep doing it. Do more of that. Do 10 times that, you know, and yeah. You guys and, are and so positive. That's success. You know? <laughs> it Last is. That's so pull. important. That, that's amazing, Dan. I think I think now would be a good spot. We can we can <laughs> wrap it up. Ben, if you want to take it home. We got a minute. All right, I'll time. take it home. <laughs> so first off, again, I want to say thank you to Dan Beck, who is, again, so above our pay grade. I just want to say thank you for taking a risk on us. Um, I mean, I obviously understand the, the ROI on someone like Siobhan, who has a band like Starset and looks like, again, a, 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 a Facebook filter just, you know, on our camera. I don't know how you do that. Cause I mean, you guys see this, this is called 2020. It's and called I makeup and good lighting. And, and thank you to Corey Peza for letting me talk over him continuously. And Dan, my last question is, will you come back and let us torture you again? <laughs> sure. I, you know, it's, uh, I, I can't really feel much anymore. So it's like, uh, you know, so I, I, I can endure the pain. Uh, <laughs> for that, you've been 2020. See you soon, Dan. Love you guys. Next week. Right, thanks. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there.